Welcome to episode 172, When You Connect, You Protect, The Impact of Social Connection on Mental Health, featuring Jessica Gifford, licensed independent clinical social worker. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Irias, and today I am happy to be talking with Jessica Gifford. She is a licensed independent clinical social worker, and her jam, her specialization is a power of connection. And as we record this, it's early 2023, and all of us have had a deep lesson in disconnection and in loneliness, and I am happy to be connecting with her about this topic and the mental health benefits specifically associated with connection. Thank you so much for joining us, Jessica. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So why don't you take a moment and tell our listeners a little bit about you and why this particular topic is what you became a specialist in? Sure. So I started out um, going to social work school, thinking I was going to do one-on-one counseling and uh, got out into the field. It was a little bit different than I thought. I, I spent about five years doing clinical social work uh, with adolescents in a variety of settings. Um, I kind of like burnt out of all of them. So I went from a residential teen program and went to an inpatient psychiatric hospital and was exposed to a lot of trauma and also um, just some of the limitations of our system and and felt like, wow, this is... This is um, harder than I thought and also felt like I wasn't helping people in the way that I wanted to and was really fortunate to get a job coming out of that um, at a local college as the director of wellness there. So I, I was shifting from doing that clinical support work to doing more prevention work and looking at how can we improve mental health and well-being in the student body as a whole. And I got really excited about that, really excited about things that um, improve well-being and that can be larger scale interventions and have um, like a, a bigger impact in that way. And uh, while I was working on a college campus, I, I started um, working on a suicide prevention grant and, and just doing research into how to how to how to prevent people from becoming suicidal in the first place like what are some of the factors that are protective and what came up over and over again was social connection having positive relationships in our lives and and feeling connected um and so that's kind of when I when I got started looking at connection. At the time, I was um, on a campus and we did this national survey. It's called the American College Health Assessment. And so, you know, it's a survey that's used nationally on college campuses. It looks at all kinds of things, including mental health data. And one of the questions they ask is about loneliness. And so I noticed that our rates were exceptionally high and, and rates across the country have been becoming higher and higher, but on this campus, they were even higher than the, than the national average. So I um, ended up doing a series of focus groups with students to, to delve into why they were feeling disconnected, to really try to understand that experience better and to also get a sense of what was working, what wasn't working, 
Um, and I came away from that with a lot of a lot of different insights, actually. But some of them were that that we need to be providing some structures to help students connect um, and to to facilitate connection and not just have this idea like they're going to meet their best friends at at orientation. And I I think, you know, some of the things that students talked about was this idea that college is supposed to be the best four years of your life. And you're supposed to meet your best friends like in your first week, and it just happens naturally. And, And so a lot of them were comparing themselves against that ideal and feeling like, there's something wrong with me that I that hasn't happened. Um, so I really felt like we need to take some of this pressure off of students to to meet their meet their friends and do it on their own because that simply wasn't happening. And as an introvert, I could relate to that as well. Like I've been in plenty of uh, work situations or or new situations where it really takes time to find your people and to develop those relationships. And so I wanted to create something to help facilitate that and make it easier, faster, um, more fun and comfortable. And so I created this program called Project Connect, which um, is a peer facilitated program that takes small groups of participants through uh, a six session curriculum to to help them get to know each other. And it really, it really took off. And so that's uh, after about two years of offering that on the college campus, I decided to, to launch my own business, which happened to be right at the start of the pandemic. Um, so g- good timing in some ways, bad timing in other ways. But um, that's what I've been doing for the last three years is, is really working with uh, organizations to help promote connection. It's hard for me to even know where to begin just because I think we've all had such a masterclass in being disconnected. Um, and goodness knows we could probably delve into a conversation about the impact of social media and people traveling quite a bit, moving away from the families of origin and all of these other phenomena. But suffice to say, um, we may be connected virtually, but lack it seems vulnerability and connection now um what made you first key in to the loneliness and then the following uh disconnection and and really the antidote of connection to be protective with depression and suicidality i think um I think the first red flag for me was um, <clears throat> was looking at the data around our loneliness rates and being, you know, it was like, it's like, wow, like three quarters of students are lonely. <laughs> and, and yeah, now when we look at the rates, it's it's about um, they're they're measuring it differently. Before it was sort of like, have you been very lonely in the last year or in the last month or in the last two weeks? So it was it was sort of just a self report. Now they're using the UCLA loneliness scale to to assess student loneliness. Um, so at the time the rates were were actually higher because they were saying within the last year versus like do you meet the criteria for being lonely now but but the rates were just astronomically high and and that was a signal to me that there's something wrong um and uh, yeah so i i had already been in um 
looking into the research around the importance of connection for, for suicide prevention. And so I think that's why it was a red flag for me that the rates were so high. Um, you know, if it's, if it's, if loneliness and disconnection are connected to suicide, then clearly there's, there's something going on. Uh, so, so yeah, I just wanted to, that, that was, I think that was sort of what opened the door. And then I just kind of got really into reading up all about it. There's, there's some podcasts on it. There's a lot of literature on the connection between, um, connectedness and and mental health but i think that was that was initially the two things of of learning um that connection is protective for for suicide and then seeing these just astronomically high rates of loneliness tell me a bit about the protections connectedness affords us um so you've mentioned the impact on depression and suicide um, but so I guess I have a two part question, like, why does it help us? And then my next question that I want to get to is, what does connection look like? So if we were to quantify it, like, what is quality connection? How do we measure it? Um, so we'll get okay, there. But yeah, so let's start so with are, point one. Yeah, great um, like, why, why do we want to do this? Why is this protective for us? Yeah. So there's um even even before i got into the suicide prevention research when i was when i was when i kind of moved from doing clinical work to doing more preventative mental health and well-being work i really dove into positive psychology and so positive psychology is really researching flourishing you know researching um positive mental health as opposed to like, how do we treat mental illness, but how do we promote well-being and and happiness and positive emotional states? And that literature is really clear that that our relationships are more important than anything else. And I, I think, um, I don't know if you've heard of what's called the hedonic treadmill, which is, is part of the psychology literature of the things that are more, uh, that, that cause momentary pleasure, things like getting a raise or, um, winning the lottery or remodeling your kitchen, whatever, whatever that is. It can give you pleasure and enjoyment, but it tends to wear off. Um, because we adjust to it. And so it's sort of like our, our baseline continually is, is adjusting. And so it gives us that like momentary dopamine boost, but then we adjust to it and then we need something more to get that dopamine boost. So relationships, I think the theory, as the theory goes, the relationships are really variable. You know, so, so, so you don't ever really adjust to them because, you know, your interactions are constantly different and changing. So that's, that's one part of it. But another part of it is just that we are wired as social animals. So kind of, you know, going back to our, our evolution, we lived in tribes and, and that was a, a safety thing. And so we're really wired to, um, be tribal, to feel safe when we're with other people, to feel more comfortable, to feel, you know, happier. So, so I think neurologically, we are designed to, to 
be with other people and be connected. And really, when you think about when you think about living in tribes, like how we're living now, how most of us are living, um, might be considered like unnatural from our from our sort of wiring. It might be, um, you know, a lot more people are living alone than ever before. Uh, but even if you're living in family units, that's really different than than living in a community or tribe where you're connected with the same one to 200 people and really know them and have have all of those connections and people to rely on. Certainly in my work with clients, I in my past have worked primarily with adolescents and young adults. And so hitting that population as you're talking about the college students and then kind of building the framework of connection as we age, I remember stumbling upon some research myself um, that for the adult stage, so solidly out of young adulthood into adulthood before we're into older adulthood, that the critical element for relationships was basically proximity and deliberateness. So needing to be near people and then also being invested in nurturing that relationship. You're smiling and nodding as I say that. Can you speak to that? You know this research way better than I do. But as someone that certainly has looked at an evolving friend group around me, and particularly during the pandemic, as we look around and see people moving, situationships changing, um, how do we build connection at any stage of life? Can you speak to that part about proximity and deliberateness as kind of the framework for relationship? So I think proximity is um, it makes it much easier to connect because you have that repeated exposure. And there's there's been some interesting um, studies around like classrooms, like just seeing a face over and over again makes you more likely to like them, even if you haven't even interacted with them. Um, but uh, there was another study, I think, at like a um, police academy that showed that people developed friendships with um, people who had similar last names. So that sounds interesting, but it was because they were seated together all of the time so that it was somebody that they would be, you know, turning to and talking to or just seeing more often. So so exposure, um, that proximity has a big impact. The deliberateness, as you're saying, it, it does take time and effort. So there's, there's also some um, research around how much time it takes to move from stranger to acquaintance to friend to... Uh, like best friend or your inner circle. And it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. Uh, but I, I do think it can actually be accelerated quite a bit. So, but I do think it really depends on what you're doing, you know, what, what you're doing together because you can get to know each other much more quickly, which is which is really what Project Connect is also about is like helping people move sort of safely to a deeper level more quickly. So you could imagine, you know, again, like in the college setting, somebody could spend 200 hours in a, in a class, sitting in a class with another student, but never get to know them. Whereas if they're interacting and talking with them, um, they're, they're going to get to know them much more quickly. So, so deliberateness is really important. Another thing that, that is important is like finding commonalities, whether that's shared values or a shared 
interests, project, um, identity. So, so finding, finding things in common. Interesting. Um, you had mentioned earlier on about sometimes culture setting up stereotypes about relationships that are not necessarily factual, like this idea of like, oh, you're going to go to college and you're going to meet all your best friends, you know, or so many people, I mean, <laughs> at least speaking for myself, so many people will say like, oh, you know, high school, those are the best years of my life. And I promptly go, really? I know. Um, like, what? <laughs> you had a different experience in high school than I did. <laughs> right. Right. Like, I want to go whatever school you were at. Um, but relationships are hard. And I think we spend a lot of time talking about intimate relationships, romantic relationships, and it's easy for us to overlook friendship and the importance of connection. Um, so going to that kind of part two of my two part question, how do you define connection? Like, what does it look like? Um, how do we move from acquaintance into connection into that kind of, I guess, sense of being held sense of being understood of being seen? Yeah, so I think it's really subjective. So when you look at um, loneliness or connection, those are subjective things. So somebody could have lots of friends and still feel lonely if they're not getting what their needs are from those friendships. Um, they could be surrounded by people and and still feel lonely. And so I think it it um, depends a little bit on what people want from connection. And, and some people might want, um, you know, somebody that they can share what's going on in their lives or somebody they can call when they're, when they're in crisis or need support, you know, the person they could call in the middle of the night if they had to. Um, some people might just want like people to do fun stuff with. And so I think. There's my dog <laughs> barking in the background. <laughs> um, so, so I define connection as sort of that subjective feeling of getting your needs met in your relationship, like getting what you want to from your relationship. I think part of that is also feeling like you're able to be yourself in your relationships, that you're not having to present yourself in a particular way so that somebody likes you. You're not having to like curate who you, who you are. So, um, so I think that is also important for the connection to feel genuine. You have to feel safe being yourself. So you brought up something that I thought was really interesting that stood out to me. Um, I was just thinking about this the other day and I stumbled upon, uh, bit from Saturday Night Live that was an advertisement for uh, the straight male relationship and that like one of the people in the skit like they were playing video games I think um, these two men and then one of the people's like oh yeah and then you know my dad died but it's okay you know <laughs> and they just qu quickly move on and this idea that there are different types of relationships being someone who has been marinated in feminine social pressures, women tend to have different perspectives on relationship than people under the influence of masculinity about how much we share and how intimate it is. Is there any difference? So if we're looking at what SNL was poking fun at of the straight male relationship that was focused on video gaming and not like this deep conversation about our future goals and our disappointments and whatever else might occur with different people over a different couch. Um, 
is that any less valuable or is it just as valuable as connection as long as there's a sense of like, this is enough and I'm, I feel good about it? I think as long as a person feels like this is enough and I feel good about it, then I think that's great. However, I do think a lot of that um, styles of friendship, as you're seeing, has been socialized rather than being, you know, actually what people need. And so I, I think that um, men often suffer from that. And so, so you know, when you look at um, people who get divorced or whose spouse dies, uh, men can suffer more socially than women because they might not, they might be getting a lot of social support if they're in a, in a heterosexual couple, they might be getting a lot of social support from their wife. Whereas, you know, the wife may have like lots of female friends that she's getting social support from. And so, you know, when you, when you were talking about the video game, it reminded me of um, social work school learning developmental stuff where, where children are involved in parallel play, you know, where they're together, but they're doing their own yes. thing. And so I think that's how a lot of men are kind of trained to socialize and they, they, they don't necessarily feel comfortable opening up. Um, if that is meeting their needs, that's great. But I, I do think there was some article I read that was really interesting about um, boyhood friendship and kind of reaching this point, you know, boy, like as young boys having these super intense friends and being really close and really affectionate and sharing everything, doing everything together. And then this point where they just sort of developmentally grew apart because of social pressures and the the loss of that. So that's a little bit more how I tend to interpret um, some, some more masculine styles of friendship that you know, that it's, it's sort of what is socially acceptable and, and how people have been trained and that there's actually a loss there often. So that's what I was going to ask. Like, does that mean then that if we're looking at, to quote SNL, the straight male relationship, um, that these relationships may not be as protective, may not be as rewarding because we've conditioned hyper masculinity, quote unquote, toxic masculinity, where we often don't talk about soft spots, whereas the typical female relationship, if both parties are or all parties are under the influence of feminine conditioning, it's like <laughs> often this deep dive into like, how are the kids handling yes. that? <laughs> just, you know, like, tell me everything. What happened with your aunt? Yes. 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 <laughs> like, it's just very different. But does does that does that create some neurological medical impacts knowing that disconnection breeds other medical issues yes. like and and I'd love for you to speak to that but it's like I'm looking at this from a kind of socio-cultural perspective of uh oh what have we done here that we've cultured one group of people yeah. in our community to connect and we've cultured another group not to so there is actually a um a theory uh, uh so so there there is a large body of research showing that um, connection is physically protective as well as protective for mental health. So um, 
Julianne Holt-Lundstad, I believe is her name, who did like a meta-analysis and looked at the impact of chronic loneliness on health and basically found that it was the same as smoking about a 15 cigarette a day habit. Um, so like significant, significant health impacts and that chronic loneliness shortens lifespan. So there's a theory that, um, that's one of the reasons that men die younger than women is because they have less of that protective social connection. And, um, I believe there were some, some cult that they were looking at some cultures where that wasn't the case. Like if you look in the, the blue, the blue zone, um, the blue zones where people are living much longer lives. One of them is, um, somewhere in Italy and it's a community where, where men are living as long as women. So there's a lot of male, uh, centenarians who are over, over a hundred and they tend to have very like affectionate, close relationships. So, you know, I don't think there's enough information to, to sort of say, this is why men are dying younger than women, but absolutely it could be a contributing factor. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, the, the, the cigarette, um, the cigarette thing kind of like, for me, it really quantifies it. It's like, whoa, okay. So this is a biological need to have connection when we're lacking that it, it has really significant impacts on our health. And I want to reemphasize that it's chronic loneliness because everybody experiences loneliness at different times of their life. So not to be worried like, oh my God, I'm going to die young because I, you know, because I'm feeling lonely. But if it is chronic, then it's a signal that, um, that we need something sort of like hunger or thirst is a signal. It's a signal like we need to, we need to focus on, on making connections. Given your experience and your research on this, we'll talk about different stages of the lifespan, but I'm curious when we're talking about infancy, young childhood, childhood, how do caregivers, attachment figures condition children of all genders to have meaningful relationship? Like, how do we find the loopholes to avoid that trap of here are some little boys that are getting on great. And then this invisible thing happens at some mm. age and they're like, yeah, cool. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's okay. Yeah. You know, like then we become too cool for school. How do we condition in social skills and investment in social relationship in children? So I think, um, exposure, you know, exposure and practice. I think even in our, our interactions with children, just, you know, being present with younger children, that, that facial responsiveness is so important and the interaction is so important to development and then exposure to other, to other kids, like just, just being socialized, being, being involved. And I am a very strong advocate of, um, social emotional learning in schools to really help educate kids, 
how to socialize because it's it's such an important life skill, but it really takes a back burner to the academic side of things. But but really, like learning how to relate to to people is going to be central to to happiness, to family life, to work life, to to everything. And so I think actively teaching those skills in school all the way up through adulthood, because lots of us never got never got those skills. So you know, learning social intelligence skills is is really important. And also I think having conversations about about it, like reducing the stigma around loneliness to just have conversations about why people are feeling disconnected, what's going on. So it's, so it's normalized and there's not shame around it. Um, yeah. So those are, those are my initial thoughts. I, I do like when you're talking about social development, I do really worry about the impact of technology on that. Um, both from the perspective of, parents often, you know, being distracted by their iPhones and not being fully, you know, present, which, you know, happens is, is of course, that's going to happen from time to time. But, <laughs> but if you're, you know, like, if it's all the time when, when your kid is trying to interact with you, and you have that blank kind of iPhone face, that's going to have an impact. Um, and also kids, kids being on their phones, I, I think technology, you know, it has that dopamine release, so it can be, it can really hook people. It can be an easier way to, to, to get a little hit of connection, but it's not necessarily the type of connection that is protective to mental health. And so I think often people turn to it because it's easier and and feels safer. There's less emotional risk, but they're not really getting the, the genuine connection that they need. So I kind of, um, created this metaphor of, you know, if you, if you look at all of your relationships and interactions as your social diet, you know, think about like, what kind of nutrition are you getting? And those quick, like short online interactions or quick exchanges that are, you know, light, but, but kind of shallow or superficial, that's fluff. You know, that's like cotton candy, cotton candy. And, <laughs> Uh, you know, nothing wrong with cotton candy, but if that's 90% of your diet, then you're going to start to feel that um, you're, and you're going to be craving something else. Knowing that social connectedness is just generally good for us. How does this overlap with neurodivergence? So when we're working with individuals who have different capacity for reading uh, social emotional cues of others for responding to them for displaying different affect themselves. How does that come into play? And how do you nurture that in folks who are neurodiverse? So that's a great question. It's not my field of expertise. I, I, I what I would say is I think those people need connection as much as anyone else, but it often is communicated and, and kind of translated differently. So, um, you know, like it might not be physical touch or physical affection. It might be, there might be a different way of connecting um, verbally or expressing emotion. And so I, I think just trying to learn that language as much as possible and learn how that person 
likes connection and wants connection, you know, how you can, how you can communicate with them in a way that is comfortable and, and reaches them. So that's what I would say off the top of my head, but it's, it's not my, um, area of expertise. Thank you. I think, I think even that though is something to think about that you're not saying, okay, folks who don't like physical touch or that's uncomfortable for them don't get connection. It's just going to come in a different package. And I think that's kind of what people can assume, you know, people tend to maybe interpret um, the the behavior of someone as neurodivergent as they don't want connection because it looks different than it, than it might feel for us. Um, And so I think just trying to go beyond that and, and be open to learning what, um, what works and how they might want to connect. Thank you for that. And thank you for kind of taking a little jaunt into that. In your analogy about diet and social media, it reminded me of an episode that we had done in the past with Dr. Don Grant talking about social media and what he called good digital citizenship. And this idea of being mindful of the kind of relationships that we're investing in and that they're really not a stand in for not necessarily in person, but for more, um, real-time exchange of information to get our amygdalas doing what amygdalas do. Um, and as you said, that we can't really sustain on a on a diet of cotton candy. Um, for our listeners that want to learn more, that's a great episode, again, featuring Dr. Don Grant uh, talking about social media consumption and kind of awareness around that. Certainly having worked a lot with adolescents and young adults. So for me, social media didn't exist. Right. Social media when I was in high school wasn't a thing. So it wasn't something I had to be concerned about. Um, but that it's been so interesting to me to watch the shift in these relationships and the move to texting instead of talking on the phone, things like that. Um, you now teach people how to build connection. Can you give us the connection building 101? Sure. I'm like, what does that look like? Uh, like, h- how do we get better at this kind of regardless of our age and our situation to really create better building blocks for these more meaningful relationships. Sure. And I actually, um, I actually have some downloads. I don't know if that's something you can link to, but I have a couple of downloads on my site to help with building connections. So, um, one is the, the, the six S's. So they all start with S. So it's easy to remember, but six S's of building connections. So thinking about, um, being in small, groups or one-on-one as opposed to like, you know, you might enjoy a large event or a concert. There might be great energy there. Um, and, and if you go with your friends, you might feel connection, but you're not going to actually meet and initiate much connection in a large group. So you, we, so we need opportunities to be with people in smaller groups. Um, sustained over time. So a lot of events and things are one off, but we need that repeated exposure that you were talking about earlier, the the proximity. So we need to be um, meeting with the same people over and over and over again to get to know them and actually like putting in time. Um, Psychological safety is incredibly important, which is essentially building, building trust. You know, that's what, that's what clinicians are doing all the time is, is, is building trust with their clients so that they feel like they can be themselves. They can express their experiences and perspectives, their, their voice without being 
afraid of criticism or, or judgment, even if there's disagreement there, that the person is respected, even if the, um, you know, even if a, a belief or something might be challenged, um, having some structure. So it's, it's, this is really helpful for introverts. If you're trying to connect with introverts to have an activity, you know, have a, have a game, um, be interacting with pets or something that takes a little bit of the intensity away from like, oh, I'm supposed to just like make conversation and come up with things, just talk. So in, in Project Connect, there's question prompts. So nobody has to like, figure out how to make conversation they're responding to to question prompts and there's there's activities shared experiences can be helpful so so again that commonality and and that that might be you know bringing together people who have a similar interest like you know or joining uh joining a club joining some kind of thing where you're you know you're you're all playing tennis together, you're knitting together. Um, it could be coming to, together around a cause or an identity, but also even if you bring a really diverse group of people together and you're um, having intentional conversation, you're going to find commonalities. And so, so just magnifying those shared experiences. It's self-disclosure or sharing. So, so really... Uh, you know, like, uh, again, you could, you could be with someone in a class or you could be working with someone, working with a colleague for years and never really get to know them. But if you are asking, you know, asking questions, inviting self-disclosure, sharing things about yourself, then that's going to create connection. And the, the, um, the, the questions in Project Connect go from lighter questions and kind of gradually progress to deeper questions. And so that facilitates people opening up in a, in a kind of a, a scaffolded way so that they're getting to know each other more deeply. Um, yeah. So, so I've, I've actually done it at workplaces where people have worked together for years and have said, like, it's really nice to get to know their colleagues on a, on a more personal level. And so I think people are looking for these opportunities, but it can feel awkward just initiating that conversation out of the blue. Yeah. Like you're not gonna, you're not gonna, you know, just in a, in a short interaction, ask a more personal question, but people are really craving that. And so creating spaces where that can happen, you know, like it could be a dinner party where you're providing some question prompts or something like that, or, um, clinically, like, I think just offering groups, more often, like, like giving people that group experience can be really, um, it can be really therapeutic and really helpful to, to participants, not only around, you know, whatever the, the content of the group is, but the experience of, of being in a group and hearing from other people and, um, building those relationships, but also hearing other people going through some of the same struggles as them. You had mentioned for folks who are more introverted, you find that like structure is a way to help kind of ease into relationship building. 
Do you have any other comments on just the differences between your textbook extrovert and your textbook introvert, knowing that for a lot of folks, there's an overlap? Um, but how, how do we navigate that with different personality types? Yeah, so um, so I identify as an introvert. And I, I think a, a few things, like one, introverts tend to think things through a little bit more before responding. And so if you're in... Um, you know, if you're in a group setting, giving people a little bit of time before responding to something, um, or inviting, like actively inviting an introvert into a conversation. So, you know, if if it's a if it's a more social situation with um, extroverts and introverts, then extroverts might just naturally dominate the conversation, and introverts might need to be sort of invited or given space to, to share. Um, so I think lots of times we want to, we want to be part of the conversation. We want to share, we, we have things to say, but might take a little bit more time to sort of process and articulate that, um, and might have a hard time inserting ourselves into the conversation. So just, just actively creating that space. You have, talked a little bit about the importance of building connection, particularly as it relates to depression and suicide. Can you speak a little bit more about that? Um, you had mentioned before we started recording that while there's research about suicide prevention, it's this assumption basically that there may already be suicidality. So how do we get ahead of even the suicidality? And it sounds like based on your research, you're sitting here saying connection, that's how we do it. Can you speak to that and kind of the impact of connection or lack thereof on depression and suicidality? Yeah, so there's, there's one study that, um, that I got really excited about. I know not everybody gets excited about studies, but um, so it was looking at a hundred thousand medical patients in the UK. So they have, you know, they have this huge just bank of data, and they were looking at um, a bunch of different modifiable factors and to to measure their impact on preventing depression. So they identified 106 different factors that were things that people can control. So they they weren't looking at um, risk factors like family history or socio uh, socioeconomic status or things like that, but things like sleep, exercise diet, that kind of thing. So out of all 106 factors, what they found was that confiding in others was the most protective in terms of preventing the development of depression. And so um, confiding in others, so, you know, your your audience is clinicians and have, have people confiding with them. So you're, you're helping protect, but also having people just socially in their, in their natural lives that they could talk to about um, what was going on with them. And that helped prevent depression over the next few years with people um, both who had a lot of risk factors for depression, as well as people who didn't. And so even people who might be at high risk for depression, having people who they're able to talk with is really protective. So 
you know, as a business owner, I, I am try I try to come up with like memorable things. And so I'm like, okay, I, I want people to remember that when we help connect, we protect. So, so when we're helping people build connections in their lives and have stronger relationships, it's protecting against depression, suicidality, um, stress, anxiety, all of those negative mental health outcomes. What you just shared, I think, is really powerful, just the, the power of connection and, and self-disclosure, particularly. For you as a clinician, knowing this information, so let's pretend you're not in the environment of facilitating groups like you are, do you think it comes down to a lot of, of um, psychoeducation with clients and saying, you know, tell me about your last few weeks, who have you seen? Like you said that you've just been kind of feeling listless, maybe a little lonely, do you just inject a lot of psychoed there? How do you do it? So I think um, I think psychoed is is really helpful, but I I think there's often a big gap between knowing and doing that we all know we we all know like what's good for us and what we need, and yet it's still really hard to do that. And so I, I think helping clients bridge that gap um, to encourage, you know, to, to encourage them to take some risks, you know, to participate in a group, or maybe it's to um, get involved in, you know, take, take a step to, to sign up for a club or to sign up for a class or, or something where they're actually um, getting into action and getting into practice where they're, where they're with other people's, so I think it's really helpful for clinicians to keep in the back of their minds and to ask questions about clients' social lives and, and their connectedness and and ask questions not just like who's in their life, but how are they feeling about those relationships and to do um, some social assessment in the same way you know, we assess mood and we assess sleep and, and all of those other things. And I'm, I'm sure many people are already doing this, but to just, to just have that in mind of, is that, um, a gap? Is that an area of need, um, where, where people are feeling lonely or dissatisfied with the level of connection in their lives and how to, you know, have conversations with them about how do they ramp that up. And sometimes, you know, sometimes it's a matter of skills where psychoeducation can be really helpful. Like sometimes people do need um, some work around like social intelligence skills. Uh, but a lot of times it's more, you know, I, th I think it's, it's, it can be hard to figure out like, how do I make those connections and where do I find the time and how do I sort of um, get ready for the emotional risk of putting myself out there in that way? So, so providing a support around that. My brain just made a leap, and I'm curious if you know anything about the leap. <laughs> um, this idea that self-disclosure is protective and is kind of foundational to feeling connected. And you mentioned, you know, that's what we do in therapy. Um, is that why therapy works, Jessica? <laughs> <laughs> that's probably a piece of it. I'm guessing that that's a significant piece of it. <laughs> but as you were talking, I was thinking like, you know, there's this 
this evolution and self-disclosure with social media, you know, people can self-disclose a lot and end up feeling exposed or, or sometimes be like victims to trolls or to other types of things. And so I, I think that does add another element in terms of self-disclosure. And it, it just, it just is a different landscape in terms of people figuring out like, how much is the right amount to self-disclose and in what settings. And so self-disclosure is therapeutic when it's with somebody who is safe and responsive um, and able to, to be supportive. So yes, in the therapeutic setting, maybe, you know, I, some people probably find, you know, some people find blog writing and so on therapeutic, but definitely really really different to put yourself out there in a public way on social media or something like that. That's a really good point. And I was thinking about it kind of through the lens of attachment theory. I've certainly had conversations with clients before of, I call it the relationship house, but it's like, well, first somebody, you meet them outside your fence and you greet them and you see how does that go? And then you might say like, oh, you know, do you want some iced tea on my on my stoop and we can sit here and, and watch the sunset. And that kind of there's this gradual development of intimacy. And over the years, I came up with what I call the China cabinet, um, which is like kind of our deepest, darkest things that only very select people get to know about us that are very intimate and very special and guarded that it's like, well, you know, do we think that that person might have gotten like, I, I think of it like true blood and vampires, <laughs> where it's like, if you rescind the invitation, they get sucked out of the door of the house. Uh, but so it's like, did we zoom them in too right. fast into our, you know, into holding a, a teacup that's really delicate when they basically haven't earned even the ability to come through our front door yet, let alone hold this really delicate, important teacup. Um, and that kind of practice of metered self-disclosure and the building of the relationship, because I think there is often this appeal with quote unquote trauma bonding of like, yes, let's speed past all of that. And it's like, here's all of my stuff and we'll be besties now. And I've known you for yes, Yes. Yeah. And the China cabinet is, is a good metaphor because of the, you know, it's fragile. What's in there. It's like, you know, it can, it's, it can be broken. And so you want somebody to be careful, you know, you, yeah, to feel safe with that. So speaking of China cabinets, um, therapists, Therapists often spend the bulk of their days talking about people's china cabinets and might get tired of looking at china, their yes. own or someone else's. And I've talked to many a therapist and have said it myself that I am, quote unquote, talked out. Um, therapists are uniquely uh, at risk for burnout. We have some great episodes, I should note, on burnout um, and compassion fatigue. But what does connection look like for helping professionals who are in the business of connection, but sometimes might feel a lack of connection outside of their work. Yeah, so I, I think it can look a variety of different ways. I, I do think it is important to, um, you know, potentially to have your own therapist or to have um, somebody that you're able to talk with about what you're what you're processing without obviously violating your client's confidentiality so i know that that that's an additional challenge that you can't go home and like talk to your spouse about your day in the same way that some other people can but i think 
even if you're feeling talked out, it is still really important to find ways to uh, process what you're feeling if it is a high level of, of, of trauma, you know, so that we can, can manage that. Um, so, so I think that is important. And I think it's really important to have fun, you know, to have people that you can have fun with and be not talking, you know, um, not, not necessarily providing support for. So like having friends that you can just laugh with, have fun with, you know, be physically active with so that you're getting some of that, all those stress hormones out of your system as well. Um, and kind of being, being aware of what your social supports, like how connected you're feeling, um, so that you're not playing the therapist with all of your friends and family as well as in your, in your job, because that could be really exhausting. So, so yeah, so doing the things that feed you and, and nurture you and, and help with the recuperation, because that can be really, really draining. Before we talked, you were talking about kind of some simple exercises that can help build connection for our listeners. Can you just give us some examples of like, how do you encourage this um, when we live in what feels like an increasingly disconnected world without it feeling too fabricated, too scripted? Like, how do we do that? Yes. <laughs> so I think um, providing that structure, again, is really helpful. So providing an activity. Um, so it, it depends on the setting. But I think if, you, if you're working in groups, um, clinicians, if you have, if you have sort of group supervision or other meetings where you're coming together with other clinicians, this could be a good, some good exercises to, to get some support and connection with your colleagues. So one is a simple check-in. Um, and so, you know, instead of just saying like, how was your day? having a check-in prompt. And and I like to have like a, a, a positive and a negative. So, you know, like what went really well last week? What didn't go the way you wanted it to? Um, or, you know, one of my favorites is, is just like, tell me about your happies and crappies. Um, or like, what are you looking forward to? What are you not looking forward to? So, uh, so a, a simple check-in prompt can spur conversation. Um, another thing that, that I like to do that, that this could be, you know, this could be a good thing to do in groups. Again, it could be a good thing to do with your family. Um, I call it vent and validate. And so it's, it's sort of, instead of the venting session where it just turns to everybody complaining and is super negative, it's kind of coaching people to, to vent and, you know, to pick something that's not like, super high trauma to vent about, but like kind of middle of the road. That's something that is on their mind. That's, that's causing them stress, but, um, isn't totally superficial and isn't totally heavy. And then to, to coach other people to, to just validate, you know, to just express empathy, to just say, you know, that sounds really hard, stressful, sucky, (laughs) you know, nerve wracking, whatever, whatever it is. Um, and so that's something that people tend to 
enjoy and it can be a way to get to know what's on people's mind, but it can also kind of lighten the mood and people can, can laugh about it. Um, and then question, question prompts, I think can be really versatile in general. Like you can have one at the dinner table, you can have one, you know, in the first five minutes of your session and, and just, um, have a question prompt that helps you get to know the other person as a person. Um, but it might not be the kind of thing that you would just naturally have in conversation. So it can be helpful to like institute in a meeting or something like that. So like, we're going to spend the first five or 10 minutes uh, on this question prompt and, and people can, can generate, you know, the group itself can generate question prompts. Um, but asking things like, um, if you had to pick a theme song for your life right now, what would it be? So that could be like, you know, it could be fun, but it can also be revealing. Um, or if you had to be at a reality TV show, what, what would you choose? Uh, or, you know, there's, there's, there's tons, like just um, picking some, some fun questions to get conversations started. And that can take the pressure off of like, oh, what am I, you know, what am I going to say? How am I going to fill the silence and, and help people get to know each other? I think those are some great and very helpful examples. Um, I love the idea of vent and validate and um, happies and crappies. I've heard parents do uh, roses and thorns in my house. We do high, low, learned where we talk about a high, something that was low, and then whatever we learned from the day, whatever that could be. Um, but I, I love, I love those ideas. And then the introduction of those things into therapy as opportunities to kind of practice these skills. Because as you said, at the beginning, depending on our socialization, we really may not have gotten a lot of attention paid to how we build relationship. And it's all been so affected in the last number of years, um, that, we have to be that much more uh, dedicated and educated to actually make it happen because it almost feels like you're going against the grain as I don't know. I, I just, at least for me, I have such clear images of the earlier days of the pandem pandemic of all of us with our Clorox wipes and our uh, cereal boxes from the grocery store, like looking yes. at everybody with side looking eye. fearfully. Was at like other this, people. this can't be healthy. Yes. Yeah, like this can't be healthy for society. Like you go check the mail, and your neighbors checked it too, and you're like, I'll come back in a few hours. <laughs> I'm you scared of you. Um, yeah, it, it can't be good for us. Um, and I, I think all the more important to have folks like you that are standing at the mountaintops and and singing the praises of connection, because I think. Sometimes it seems like something we can let go by the wayside. But if I'm understanding you correctly, we really can't, uh, not just for our mental health, but for our physical health. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm definitely, you know, obviously, I'm, I'm in this field, I'm, I'm biased, but I think it really needs to be prioritized. And I think we need to shift away from this idea, like, it's just going to happen naturally, it's going to happen on its own. And, and to actually um, provide, provide things for people that makes it easier. You know, like when you look at the, um, when you look at dating 20 years ago, online dating was sort of like, it was sort of this, you know, um, weird thing that a few people were doing. And there was, you know, maybe some judgment around like, well, why can't they find their person on their own? Why do they have to use this online platform? Or why are they, 
using this other structure. And now it's completely normal. And I think we need to normalize that for friendships as well, that, that we, that we need to have more things to facilitate people meeting each other and developing friendships and not just expect like that it's easy to go out and, and find that on your own. Cause sometimes it is, and sometimes it isn't. Um, so, so just providing as much support and, and structures and help as possible so that people can build those connections. And the, you know, you were, you were talking about the pandemic, um, how, you know, a lot of people said, Oh, I like, I think I completely lost my social skills during the pandemic and have to relearn. And so an exercise as simple as vent and validate, I think can help teach people to respond with empathy as opposed to like, I'm going to fix that for you or else I'm going to complain and, and, or one up you or, or whatever. And so it can just provide a really simple, um, instructions for how to, how to respond in a helpful way. You have shared so much. You've given not only great ideas for how we can support clients with this, but also how we can support ourselves. Um, and just some research that I think really validates what you've been talking about for our listeners who want to learn more about you and about your work. Um, how do they do that? So they can go to my website. Um, my business name is Project Connect. The, that URL was already taken. So it's projectconnect-us.com. Um, so that's my website. They can find me on LinkedIn. I do have a blog on my website as well. It's called uh, 101 Ways to Create Connection and Community. So each post is just one short connection tip or, or social intelligence skill. Um, so if people are interested in that there, they can take a look at it or link to it if they think it's a helpful resource for, for, for clients. Um, yeah, so that's how people can find me. Fantastic. Are there any particular books, um, or other websites, resources that you find really helpful to kind of help hone in on some of the things you're talking about and drive home the the research and the skills? Sure. So, um, one of the, if, if people are really interested, um, one of the initial books that really brought attention to this is called Bowling Alone by Robert Putnam. And that was looking at um, just changes in social trends across the country and how people are not having people over to dinner as much, not, you know, involved politically, socially, religiously as much, how how social lives have dwindled. So that's kind of a, that's kind of like a, a seminal work in the field. Um, there's more recent things. One of the, one of the um, most recent books to come out is called Platonic, and that looks at why why friendships are as important as um, as romantic relationships and and some of the the data on that. Um, so that's that's really about adult friendship. So there's there's a lot there's a lot out there. It's a, definitely a growing field. Awesome. Um, you've given us so much to think about, and I, for one, have enjoyed connecting with you. And I hope that it's been as helpful and fruitful for our listeners as it has been for me. Um, so again, for our listeners, Jessica Gifford here, licensed independent clinical social worker. Make sure to check out her company, Project Connect. Thank you so much for joining us, Jessica. This has been just enlightening. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. 
You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.